Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who just looked in the mirror and things aren't looking so good. He's looking California, but feeling Minnesota. Here's my co-host from the left coast, Wayne Fugate. A whole lot, Ben. I mean, one of the best lines ever. Absolutely. So for this episode, we have a special guest. He is the author of the book, Total Effing Godhead, the biography of Chris Cornell. Please welcome to the podcast, Corbin Reef. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. So premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each episode, we ask the all-important question. I'm going to start with you, Wayne, because I'm pretty sure I already know what you're wearing. What t-shirt are you wearing? Uh, recently, I got a shirt that it was intended for you. It is Green Rivers, Death on Ten Legs. But on the back, it says Ride and Six Pack, and you don't drink or swear, so I kept it. You kept that one, absolutely. And uh, I'm I'm wearing I'm wearing a Soundgarden shirt. So I bet I bet you can't figure out what the premise of today's episode is going to be. <laughs> well, which Soundgarden shirt? Uh, you know what? It is. I don't know. Did you get this at Sub Pop? I did. I, the Sub Pop store is my new favorite T-shirt place. <laughs> so it's just a white T-shirt. I, I live here in Florida, so white T-shirts uh, in July are kind of a must. And uh, I don't even know how to describe the, uh, the, the, the photo that's on there. But uh, yeah, Soundgarden. So nice. this is this is my third Soundgarden shirt, and I'm okay with that. So, <laughs> how about you, Corbin? What T-shirt are you wearing? I uh, I didn't know we were supposed to be wearing cool shirts. I did wear my uh, I'm wearing a Fender guitar T-shirt today. Uh, it has like the California flag on it, but instead of the bear just kind of like being a bear, uh, it's it's playing a, a Fender Stratocaster. There you so go. Uh, nice. Trying to spice it up. It's summertime, you know. You got to keep it light. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. So. Uh, so let's talk about uh, you as being an author. So you're not the the first uh, author that we've had on the, on this podcast, uh, and this is not your first book that you writ you, that you've written. So tell me about Lighters in the Sky before we talk about uh, talk about Chris Cornell. Sure, yeah, um, Lighters in the Sky was my first book. Uh, it came out I think 2017, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And uh, basically the premise of that book is if you can go back in time to like every year from like 1960 to 2016 and see one concert, you know, what concert would that be? So I picked a show from every year between 1960 and 2016 uh, that was epic for whatever reason, cool for whatever reason. And I kind of detailed the history of it uh, or, you know, got, gave a, you know, a first person perspective of it or, you know, did lists, all sorts of creative ways to write about all these epic concerts like Led Zeppelin at Earl's Court in 1975 or Prince at the LA Forum on the Purple Rain Tour, Beatles at Shea Stadium, you know, things like that. Kind of just to run through the history of music from a, from a live perspective because it always kind of goes down to the albums. And I yeah. thought it would just kind of be a different spin on things. So favorite concert that you've ever gone to? Oh, man. Well, now you're going to put me on the spot. Um, I know. Huh. Is it sacrilege if I don't say a Chris Cornell concert at this point? I'll say my no, favorite. Chris, no, it's I'll, fine. I'll say my favorite Chris Cornell concert. How about that? Because that's a lot easier for the writer to do. Uh, it, it was the last one I, I saw um, that he performed. I think it was 2015. Uh, Mad season. Mike McCready's supergroup was kind of reforming at Benaroya Hall here in Seattle, and um, Chris Cornell was given duty to kind of sing a lot of those Lane Staley songs. 
And then in the middle of the show, like, you know, Matt Cameron comes out, Jeff Ament and Stone Gosser comes out. And all of a sudden, you know, what was a mad season reunion turns into a temple of the dog reunion. And they played nice. call me a dog and they played reach down and my mind was exploded. My jaw was on the floor. It was just, <laughs> just fantastic. Yeah. I, I was doing a little research cause, uh, so going back to what you were talking about, Wayne, with, uh, your green river shirt. So I saw them at the community world theater in Tacoma in wow. October of 87. Wow. And, and I, I could have swore, and this is where I got disappointed because I've told people for years that I'm like, I'm pretty sure Soundgarden opened for green river. And, um, just based off of looking at old set list, I don't I think would, that happened. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't find I couldn't find out who who opened for Green River, but it was, you know, the 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 chances of seeing. So I was an eighteen year old kid at that point. the ch- The chances of seeing Green River or Soundgarden in the Seattle area and being underage wasn't real good. Like you, Community World Theater was the punk scene for about i don't know year and a half two years am i am i saying that right wayne yeah, for it was, it was yeah. short-lived right yeah so so yeah so so it was either that or you could like i i remember and i don't remember what the band was but there would be like warehouses in canton auburn that during the day would be, you know, warehouses for whatever. And then on Friday and Saturday night, they would move all their stuff that's in the warehouse back and play shows. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, so that whole scene that you see in singles, um, that, that was the vibe. That's awesome. So how was the show? I mean, (laughs) um, I'll put it this way. I went to community world theater once and that was to see green river because like I went away from their sore uh, because everybody was moshing and it was a very small venue. Like it's, I think it's a church now. If I, if I remember correctly, that wouldn't surprise me. And I'm not a big fan of, getting thrown around and I'm, you know, I'm five ten, and back then I was what Wayne, like one sixty. So soaking wet, soaking wet. So, uh, those were the good old days. Right. Um, but yeah, I wasn't a big fan of the whole punk scene. Like I liked the, the music somewhat, but I didn't like the, the vibe of getting thrown around. And sure. I wasn't that angry. I wasn't like Wayne. Wayne yeah. Wayne's the angry guy of, of yeah, this Wayne podcast. <laughs> oh, I love moshing. We went to a place called the Red Roof Pub that was down oh, yeah. towards the end of uh, Ponder's Corner in Tacoma. And that's where all the the, the like original uh, they did the original music bands, you know, that wanted to be the next Alice in Chains and the next Soundgarden would all play there. Oh yeah. I'm, I mosh my ass awesome. off every Friday night. That's awesome. That's the life. <laughs> and and you probably got in good there because wasn't wasn't Byers wasn't wasn't Mike wasn't he Mike was uh, the bouncer. bouncer there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was the that was so much fun to like. That was the first time ever in my life we I went somewhere with a bunch of friends and I knew the bouncer. We all got in. <laughs> awesome. 
Also, also known as uh, we sometimes called him Psycho, if that tells you anything. <laughs> I can bet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so so tell me about your 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 new book because uh, I'm looking at Amazon's top books in music commentary, and congratulations, you are the top bill right now. People love Chris Cornell. That's that's more about Chris Cornell than I think that it is about me. If I can be uh, a little bit modest here, he's he's a yeah. uh, a dynamic singer songwriter, um, one of the leaders of, as you guys know, one of the greatest rock and metal bands of all time. Um, just did so much in his career and, and made so much music that affected so many people. Then, you know, when I was, I was right, I was finishing up Lighters in the Sky, and my editor approached me after Chris had died, knowing I was a huge fan of his music and saying, you know, what, how do you feel about writing a book about him? And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. You know, there was so much uncertainty in the air, and, you know, I, I just kind of put it off. I said, no, I don't think I'm the guy to do that. But, you know, I, I, was, I just looked around and I saw all these books about Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and grunge and Nirvana and just all these different topics. And there just wasn't anything out there about Chris's story or Soundgarden's story or, or um, you know, all the things that he'd done in his career or how pivotal Soundgarden was to the early emergence of the Seattle rock scene in the 80s and 90s that you guys, you know, experienced firsthand. And, um, so it pissed me off, honestly. And I decided, you know, after, you know, I paid my respects to his, his uh, final resting place in, in LA and I decided, you know, I'm going to write this wrong. I'm going to try to write a book about his life. And, and that's kind of what total effing Godhead is, is a soup to nuts, top to bottom story of Chris Cornell from the time he was born here in Seattle to, to the, his final day in, uh, in Detroit and everything in between all the songs, all the music, all the albums, all the tours, all the uh, friends, all the good times, the bad times, and everything in between. Just to, I try to make as 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 full a portrait of Chris as I could, um, and I hope I succeeded in that goal. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's got to get to my library first. So it's in my cart on Amazon. Yeah. Check that thing out. What are you doing, man? <laughs> I know. I spend I spend all my money on uh, on on used vinyl and T-shirts these days, I can't and I'm that. I can't and I, on that. And I'm sending I'm sending my daughter to college, and it's not cheap. So oh, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, so I'll I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. But <laughs> definitely. So how would you describe? Because I, I I I've talked to people about Soundgarden, and you know, I don't know if I would really call Soundgarden grunge, but I don't know what kind of tidy package you would put them in other than they're a hard rock group. So yeah, Soundgarden, they, I don't know, the grunge label is sort of a misnomer, to me at least, on a lot of different bands, because a lot of those bands that are labeled grunge sounded so dissimilar to one another that it's even hard to say what grunge even is. Is it Mudhoney? Is it Soundgarden? Is it Nirvana? Like, you know, what what is the aesthetic of that? And, and Soundgarden, specifically, they they changed so much throughout their career of, of what they started as with Screaming Life and, and uh, Ultra Mega OK and those abrasive like, post-punk indie records to then go to Bad Motorfinger, Louder to Love, Super Unknown, uh, the, more of the uh, expansive hard rock thing. So they're sort of hard to pin down. They're, they're like sort of this punk metal indie hybrid that it really doesn't fit conveniently into any sort of basket, which I think kind of in the end a little hindered them a little bit because they were so individualistic and they were so of themselves. It was kind of hard to figure out where they fit into the continuum of, of rock music. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned that he's kind of the, I guess you would call him the elder statesman of the Seattle scene there. Sure. He had sort of a, a big brother figure to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, like would would the scene have happened had it not been for him and and Andrew Wood? Oh, that's a great that's a great what if. I, I um, I, yeah, I I I honestly don't. So there's there was a chapter that uh, a chapter excerpt that um, Spin recently pulled from the book where they detail. Uh, where I detailed it. I, I interviewed the founder of Sub Pop Records. Uh, his name is Jonathan Poneman. And yeah. he talked about the first time he saw Soundgarden in 1985, way before, you know, anybody was anything in Seattle. And he walked in, there wasn't a lot of people there. He sees his band on stage and they're just ripping the joint apart. It's like one of the greatest things he's ever seen in his life. And he decides then, you know, he'd been an aspiring musician. Um, I'm going to stop trying to be an aspiring musician and maybe I should start a record label. And he fronts 20000 of his own dollars <laughs> and uh, gets Soundgarden a deal or, with Sub Pop and, and partners with Bruce Pavitt. And they put out Screaming Life and, and the rest is kind of history there, you know. I mean, who knows what have happened. It's, Seattle was such an isolated place uh, and a lot of those bands weren't able to you know, tour and they didn't get a lot of touring acts up there, as you guys probably know. And yeah. um, they were so insulated and so club-hardened from that, that scene itself and they were – they were just such an their own thing. Maybe maybe someone was coming would come along and, and discover them and and pull them out eventually. But you know, Soundgarden was the catalyst for a lot of that movement. A lot of those A and Rs coming in from New York and L A to kind of check them out and seeing like, hey, there's some there's some talent here that we should probably look at. Yeah, who who were the bands that all the A and R guys were looking at? Because um, it was it Soundgarden, and they just kind of Alice stumbled on Alice in Chains. Yeah, uh, so there was, you know, obviously there was there was a uh, Soundgarden. Alice in Chains was kind of a little bit later. Um, obviously managed by Susan Silver, who was Chris Cornell's girlfriend and then wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, obviously you had a Mother Love Bone. You had Mal- before Mother Love Bone, you had Malfunction, um, which was Andrew Wood's band before <laughs> Mother Love Bone. Right. Uh, you had Green River, like you guys had said, uh, and then they become Mud Honey to some extent, kind of a little bit. Um, there was just all this, the U-Men were even before Soundgarden, they were like the proto, proto grunge, um, band and that, that, that scene, there was just, there was so many different bands. And then there was the East side bands versus the West side or the Seattle bands, you know, the guys from, uh, Bellevue who would come over and they were more metal, like Queensryche was kind of happening at the same time a little bit, but that was more like on the East side of the city. There was just a lot of stuff going on in Seattle, but not a lot of people were paying attention to it because it was just so far away from everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what were some of the big discoveries that you made uh, while you're doing this this book that you were like, "Oh, I didn't know that about Chris." Oh man, there's there's so many to go into that it's 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 almost impossible to pick even just one out. Um, I I would say that one of the things that I was really uh, surprised by is you know I you know I like a lot of people have this just vision of him as just being this uh, going into it, at least this you know statuesque screaming guy shirt off long hair flowing you know just you know unbelievable god-given talent and just to learn how hard he really worked at his craft you know he he started off as a drummer uh, that he was soundgarden's first drummer they were like a power trio to begin with and he was the one drumming and then um you know to go from that uh where they were kind of a husker do outfit where he's singing behind the drum kit and everything to then you know he's singing by himself and they get scott sunquist in the band and matt cameron takes over for scott sunquist and then they really kind of take off because matt cameron's one of the greatest drummers in the history of drumming absolutely (laughs) and um and then yeah the, the way he he pushed himself working with altered tunings learning how to play guitar learning from Kim different guitar things, learning different tunings and chords and and really trying his best to like, you know, overcome a lot of his limitations as an instrumentalist, even though he became a, a really great guitar player in those early stages, you know, working with 
the, you know, off kilter things just to kind of create songs that didn't sound like other things. And, and then later in his life going, taking the chance to go to audio slave, taking the chance to work with Timbaland on, on the scream record, you know, like, you know, those were, uh, you know, that weren't exactly heralded at the time. I mean, I think the audio slave records awesome personally. Uh, oh, me too. Though, exactly. It rips. Like it got bad reviews in the moment, but it, it rips to this day. Like there's so much great music that that band produced. Um, but no, he just always swung for the fences. He always really took different chances and, uh, wasn't necessarily afraid of what people's perceptions were going to be because of that. And I, I really admired that about him. What were, what were the reasons that he decided to, to, to be the, the front man, you know, the typical front man, but, you know, getting away from being behind the drums, was it, well, you you brought up the Husker do. Did he realize that Bob Mould was getting more attention than Grant Hart? <laughs> that's it. No, that's you got no. <laughs> no was no. it? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. I think he just had a pull. Like I think that he was he was just that's something he wanted to do. I think that yeah. the drums were like his first like way of making sound. His mom got him like one. I think it was one snare. And then eventually he got the rest of the kit and it was just a great way to make sound easy. His brother was, his brother, older brother, Peter was a guitarist and Peter could play like stairway to heaven flawlessly. And, and Chris would like, you know, say like, Hey, can you teach me how to play that? And his brother would say, you're not ready yet. You know, and <laughs> just the thing that older brothers do. And so he was the drummer and that was his way of making sound. But I think he wanted more than that. Yeah. Looking at the, the Seattle movement, um, it seemed like for the most part, they were friends other than maybe the schism between Kurt and Eddie. Um, and even that, I think some of that was contrived. Did, did you feel like with all the people that you interviewed for this book, did you feel like any of them were not appreciative of Cornell or, or maybe had some, some bad things to say about Chris? Not really. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't really encounter a lot of people who had grudges or bad or bad things to say about him. Um, specifically, they might, you know, uh, point at the scream record that he made in 2009 and say, you know, what was that? But no one had any really personal beef with him uh, that, that talked to me. No one really uh, said, you know, he was a bad dude or, you know, he was everyone had really nice things to say about him across the board. And it seemed like he was the person who didn't really seek out conflict and, always kind of rolled his eyes at media's uh, journalists attempts to kind of draw him into fights with other bands and stuff. And uh, he never took the bait, did he never took the bait. He always kind of took the high ground with that. And I think that he, uh, he was looked up to by a lot of people in that, in that group. Yeah. Um, who, who were some of the people that you got to interview for, for the, for the book? Uh, dozens of people, you know, Perry Farrell, artist, the spoon man talked to me, Adam Casper, you oh, know, yeah. there, there, there are so many of their albums. How, Jack is, and Dino how, and, how is, how is spoon man doing? Oh, he, he, he's doing great. You know, he's, he's living his life, uh, okay. playing music still. And, and, uh, he was a, a fascinating dude to talk to. There was dozens of people. And I, I really appreciate all the people who did, uh, decide to talk to me. Yeah. Uh, any, any people that you wanted to interview that, uh, just didn't give you the time of day? There, uh, of course, you know, I, I wanted to talk to everybody who ever, you know, interacted with Chris Cornell to try to, to, to give as clear and broad a picture as I could. But yeah, there was d- dozens of people that I would have loved to have talked to, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, wasn't able to make it happen, but you know, I appreciate everything that, uh, anyone's you know, given me to help in this project. Yeah. Was Vicky involved at all? Uh, no, she wasn't ultimately. Okay. I'm assuming she's probably going to do her own book about her life with Chris, but 
Wayne, what do you got for for Corbin? I just like I say, Chris Cornell to me is that is that there's very few people I wish I was. Like I'm as much of a narcissist as anybody. I would like my life to be different, but I rarely wish I was somebody else. But that's one of the people that I think when I, I just he. I, and I don't want to get too man crushy on the whole thing, but I mean, beautiful to look Go for at, it. beautiful to hear. He wrote cool lyrics. I mean, that whole section of time where he wore nothing but shorts and Doc Martens, that hair all over the place. Like I, he just like, that was one person I, I, I wish I was. And then as the end of the story plays out, you, you think, you know, you realize that maybe there was, there's just, he has the same problems and the same kind of feelings as everybody else, but he is definitely, um, he wrote some of the coolest songs that I've ever heard. He had the best scream in rock and roll, Mm -hmm. a beautiful person. Every interview or everything I've ever seen him in, he was a a genuinely nice and interesting person. So, uh, just like I say, total man crush, the perfect, the the perfect, uh, uh, man crush. Oh, totally. I, I so I watched the the movie when it first came out. I was in school, um, and the girl that I was dating. So it was we went to a movie theater in Idaho Falls, and there was maybe six people in the whole theater watching singles. That that was really disappointing because you know. Um, but I remember her leaning over to me. So there's the one scene where. Uh, Matt Dillon is putting the speakers in his ex-girlfriend's car. <laughs> oh, you know, you know the, the one that I'm talking about? Iconic. And, yeah. And, and, and Cornell comes out and she leans over to me and she's like, he's gorgeous. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like I said the same thing. And I'm like, that's Chris Cornell. And yes, he is gorgeous. <laughs> and, and I, I don't know if that, uh, scared her away when I said that, but I was not ashamed even, you know, years ago of, of saying that is a gorgeous man. Well, did that scene come before or after the part where Soundgarden's performing birth ritual and he's shirtless hanging from the rafters? Is it after? Yeah, it's after. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, who doesn't want to be like that guy, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, let's, let's dive into the record that, uh, I threw it out to to you and and said, uh, "Hey, which which Soundgarden record you want to talk about?" And you picked Bad Motor Finger. Yeah, third third studio album by Soundgarden released in September of 1991. So to be exact, September 24th of 91, released two weeks after Nevermind. This is the first record with bassist Ben Shepard. Uh, he, he joined the band, um, after let's see who, who was it? Um, it was, uh, Hiro Yamamoto was the original founder. And then they hero left and then they got Jason Everman who was in Nirvana for a little while and then put up the money to make that bleach out the, the first Nirvana record, the bleach album, and then left Nirvana and then Soundgarden picked him up after he left Nirvana. And then he was there for about a year and then they got Ben Shepard. I can't. I can't listen to this record thinking that it would be somebody else b- besides Ben on the bass. <laughs> you know, it's savage. It's savage. Yeah. yeah, this was definitely one of the one of the records that helped propel the grunge movement. 
Uh, we've already talked about Nirvana for one one moment. Uh, you know, Pearl Jam. That record ten came out in what April of that year? Ninety one. So. Um, and of course, uh, because of Nirvana, got a got a nice little push. Um, Alice in Change, their big their big record, uh, came out the year before, didn't it? Facelift, yeah, I think it came out. In- yeah, yeah. And so that that got a nice little uh, resurgence because because of this. But Wayne, do you, do you feel like it was? And and if you could see my my hand motions, Nirvana's way up here. Pearl Jam is a little bit further down from Nirvana, and then it was like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, a distant third and fourth. I guess I'm not around here because Alice in Chains was the band that I heard of first. Um, that was the band that you know on KSW when they talked about local shows, they always mentioned Alice in Chains. They were the the band that seemed like it had the biggest push early on on rock radio. Um, so I, and I had facelift from early on. Um, and then all that stuff around here was all, it all was the same. Like this city was just, it was like you, your team just won the Super Bowl. Like you were just so proud of all of this, you know, unbelievable music that was finally making, getting national attention. Yeah. And, and I've been pretty vocal about, uh, even though I love all the bands that we mentioned, so my, my Seattle band is and will always be the Posies. And, and to be honest, they got a nice little resurgence for Frosting on the Beater because of this whole grunge movement as well. Um, so uh, let's see chart position so it peaked on the billboard 200 at number 39 uh and it was nominated for a grammy award for best metal performance because there is no separate category for best grunge performance (laughs) right um and i should have done more research and took a taken a look at who the other nominees were but i just didn't do it they didn't um, win so there's no point <laughs> yeah exactly that's part of the reason why i'm like i don't give a crap they got there's a the 95 later yeah i don't care about the other nominees um all right so we i think we've mentioned all of the members of soundgarden of course chris is on vocals and rhythm guitar uh, you got Ben on bass, you got Matt on drums, you got Kim on guitar and the four of them together just make magical music. So, um, any, any other bio info we want to talk about with this record before we go track by track? Um, produced by Terry date at Bear Creek studios in Woodenville, Washington. Um, that was their, I think, the second record they did with Terry Date after Louder Than Love. And then they went on to do Michael, uh, Super Unknown with Michael Beinhorn after this one. Okay. All right. Um, how long did it take for them to make this record? Um, not too long, I don't think. It was mostly done in the spring of 91. Uh, they were they took, did a lot of time preparing for it. They were really, really, what band that prepared really, really well. Uh, Chris actually took a trip, a solo trip by himself. Uh, to this place called Claylock, Washington. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's on the coast. Yeah, it's like on the coast. uh, Like you get out of Puget Sound, you kind of go in the Olympic Peninsula. So it's like on the water, on like the the big ocean. And uh, he rented this cabin and just for 10 days with this little Pomeranian stayed out there just writing songs, um, 
like, you know, drawing flies out there just by himself in total isolation, just to try to get some writing done. Um, and then came back and, and they started working on it. Were, were they a band that, um, preferred to write separately or because there, there are a couple songs on this album that there are some, you know, collaborative, uh, you know, workings, but for the most part, it seemed like Cornell was kind of the, he was the, the main lyricist and the main musician. Yeah, they in the beginning it was more slanted toward Hero and Kim handled a lot of the music and Chris did the lyrics. But uh, around Louder Than Love, Bad Motorfinger, Chris started stepping up and writing a lot more songs and taking charge of that. And you know they kind of got more into a process of making demo tapes, sharing them and seeing where they could kind of add different parts. Um, but there was also definitely a collaborative element to it. Like Jesus Christ Pose was the product of a, just a jam session at this place called Avast Studios that was owned by their friend Stuart Hallerman. They were just kind of all sitting around and Matt starts playing something. Ben starts playing something. They just kick into it really fast. And the rest is history. Right. And that's, that's one of the songs that does have a lot of moving parts to it. So I can see that. Yeah. All right. Uh, As a reminder, our scoring is going to be based on number of songs on the record. Wayne, how many songs on this record? 12. Which means our top song is going to get 12 points. Next favorite, 11 points on down to lowest score of one. Let's kick this off and one of the best opening tracks on any album ever. This is Rusty Cage. get get us started on rusty cage oh ladies and gentlemen introducing mr ben shepherd he is uh this right up there with uh chris cornell and the words he chooses ben plays the bass almost like a guitar in lots of it um but the uh, ultimately it's the words he chooses like uh wired and hit me with a hand of broken nails pulled my chain blood began to boil rusty k i mean dinosaur bones and all these visceral dirty edgy words that just create this aggression like i mean you just want to break free from something you can just feel it yeah corbin what do you got on rusty cage rusty cage is it's just a uh, it's just it's just lacerating like 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 wayne said you know the the imagery that chris uses with his words just the way it's just so primal i guess is the word i would use to describe is the the words that he chooses and that riff it just the way it done and like the way it kind of spins around and around and it's like a gear almost like a there's a motor to it that it just it sucks you in it draws you in as as it keeps going and it's just yeah what a way to kick off an album you're absolutely right and of course uh, you guys know that i'm a johnny cash fan so oh, yeah. this was on his 96 album unchained which won a Grammy award for best country album version. I love like in the breakdown in this, uh, where Chris Cornell is still singing, but it's much in a much different kind of cadence. Uh, Johnny cash goes into that spoken word part and it's it. That's the one thing, the one part of it that I I really dig. Cause other than that, I mean, Chris Cornell just owns the song. This is one of those songs, unlike hurt Johnny cash couldn't wrestle it away. Right. (laughs) 
Right. You know it's it's great. Uh, that that moment where Johnny Cash recorded Rusty Cage was really huge for Chris in a lot of ways. You know, Rick Rubin came to him originally and said, you know, hey, we're making this album with Johnny Cash. Could you write a song for me or write some songs for for Johnny? And so he did. He wrote some songs for him, and one was called Cleaning My Gun, uh, which didn't get used. But then Rick Rubin was like, yeah, I think I'll do – can you rearrange Rusty Cage? And Chris couldn't do it. So then someone else eventually rearranged the song for Johnny and they recorded it. And then for Chris, that was a huge moment. He was Johnny Cash was a huge hero to him. He loved that, he loved that uh, at, live at San Quentin album. And then afterwards, people started to respect Chris for his songwriting ability for the first time uh, in a real yeah. tangible way, just to getting that nod from the man in black like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Is Cleaning My Gun, that's on the, the, um, the box set, isn't it? I think it's he performed it on uh, the songbook tours. I think it's on that yeah. album. If I can't remember, uh, yeah. I can't, can't recall correctly. Yeah. And uh, the one last thing I will say before we get some scores. So uh, this was the third single and last single off of the off of the record. But uh, no no chart position. But I definitely saw this on uh, on MTV for sure. Oh yeah. Well, I bought this CD for the next song, but. This is what, I mean, this is when you put it in. This is the first thing that plays. And I just, it just, it just blew me away. Yeah. And, and Corbin, you even messaged me at one point. You're like, these first four songs are just. Oh, this, yeah. Just uh, God level. Like, honestly, like I, you give me an album with four, it's just back to back to back to back burners the way this album has. I, I can't think of another album that just starts off this fierce and just doesn't let off the gas that way. It just, it just right away. You're just Soundgarden, you know? <laughs> yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get some scores. Wayne, what do you got? 11. All right. And Corbin? 10. And this is my top score. Just because it's, like I said, it's the perfect, it's the perfect, uh, it's a perfect introduction song on the CD. So love it. All right. Next song, Outshine. The second single from the band's record, uh, first single to reach the U.S. mainstream rock charts for Soundgarden. This is what I didn't, couldn't fathom. Wayne peaked at number forty-five, and maybe it was because we were in Seattle when this was released as a single, and we heard it on the radio yeah. all the time. Um- yeah, like both the alternative station and the and the and the hard rock stations both play yep. the hell out of this. I would say maybe only just because it's so early, the rest of the country was was probably going to catch on a little bit later um, after this. But yeah, I, this is the one I saw the video for this on MTV, and I immediately went out and bought the CD at Tower Records the next day, um, and I've 
I've listened to it ever since. This is one. This is one of my favorite. This is my favorite Soundgarden song. Um, I just, I love. I, this is where you because one thing they almost all grunge, uh, and I, I hate that term too. Bands will say they have in common is Black Sabbath, and you can clearly hear the Black Sabbath that sludgy low end on this. Um, but the lyrics, I mean, and I guess. I guess in hindsight, I look at them now and, and, and say, wow, I mean, how I don't believe you can't put two and two together because some of these lines are just so they speak to what, you know, you don't think of rock stars as having, you know, being depressed or, or wanting for anything. And when you hear lines like, uh, I'm, I, I, I can't get any lower, but still I feel I'm sinking or even the line about, uh, feeling that I'm sober, but, but I'm, but I'm drinking like that, that effect that like, it's not having its, its, its desired effect. I can still hear the inside of, you know, the, the, the voices on the inside or, or the stuff that's going on inside me. But the coolest line, one of the coolest lines ever, uh, look in California and feel in Minnesota. You, every, there's no ambigu- ambiguity to that line. Everybody knows, everybody can get what you're saying when you say that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, that was one of the first instances where, where Chris really kind of wrote about his himself in a real tangible way. He, he was kind of on tour, uh, not feeling very great. You know, tour can be a grind. He looked in the mirror. He looked great. He looked like a beach bum from California. He was wearing shorts. But in the inside, he was feeling just absolutely miserable. And that line came to him, and, and, he, and he just ran with it. And like you said, so many of those lines are so vivid. They so just they really capture a mood of – you know, this exterior where you can't, you can't, you can't read what's going on on the inside, but on the inside you're screaming. And, um, the way the song does that. And then, like you said, pair, paired with the, just the black Sabbath level riffage that like just the way it grinds, the way it just automatically punches you, the speakers. I, it's just fantastic. You can't say enough. And then the video, like I know that the video, a lot of people think is corny, but for me, I was like watching, you know, Chris swing from that fucking net. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> that net and the, the sparks going everywhere, whatever. It was just cool. It was just, for me, at least it was just cool. Yeah. Going, going back to the depression thing. So I know that there are plenty of songs that he wrote during his career that kind of address, uh, you know, his mental state. Are, are there other songs that that um, really stand out that that address his his psyche in in a way that this one does? It's weird with Chris uh, as a songwriter because you know on one hand he kind of throughout his life said you know you don't you can't really know me through songs you know I don't even know me through my own songs and I have a lot more to go on than just the music but at the same mm-hmm. time he would be saying you know like if you want to get to know me re- listen to my music so. There, there was definitely this dichotomy there uh, between those two twin forces. And I think that if you listen to a song like fell on black days, um, that specifically is definitely a song that's kind of enigmatic of, uh, of, you know, not feeling so great for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do have uh, one quote uh, from Chris in regards to the, uh, the, the, the main line there that, uh, that you talked about Wayne. So he said, one of the first times I remember writing something personal was on tour. I was feeling really freaky and down. I looked in the mirror and I was wearing a red t-shirt and some baggy tennis shorts, which, you know, that sounds like what everybody in Seattle was wearing, uh, back in the early nineties. Uh, I remember thinking that as bummed as I felt, I looked like some beach kid. And then I come, I came up with that line. I'm looking California and feeling Minnesota from the, the song outshine. And as soon as I wrote it down, I thought it was the dumbest thing. 
But after the record came out, we went on tour. Everybody would be screaming along with that particular line when it came up in the song. That was a shock. How could anyone know that that was one of the most personally specific things I had ever written? It was just a tiny line, but somehow, maybe because it was personal, it just pushed that button. Well, I can say I remember him also uh, talking on MTV in an interview about being in Minnesota. The reason that he was that he put it, he picked Minnesota is having woken up there and you know opened the door, and he said it was so cold I wanted to put two pairs of boots on. It was he just was mind-blowing how freezing it was uh but yeah like i say that's what i meant about you know you listen to it you know years later and you think you just miss the part where somebody you don't connect the fact that somebody wrote these and like i say, i want to also point out that all these contradictions never get cliche like these are crisp i mean he really is able to put you know these contradictions they don't sound corny which can happen when you start you know, just taking the opposite of something over and over again, but never putting together that the person who wrote this song that, that, you know, connects, you know, these, these feelings and this depression is the, you know, somebody has, somebody has to feel this in order to put this out there so well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get some scores. This is my 11 Wayne. Ah, uh, 12. This is my favorite Pearl or my favorite uh, sound garden. So. All right. And Corbin. 12. 12, best song on Bad Motorfinger. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Next song, Slaves and Bulldozers. This is a this is a, a live staple for Soundgarden. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, and and I I never really connected with this song until I saw them do this live, and then I'm like, oh, I get this now. Um, Corbin, what do you got on uh, on this song? Yeah, like you said, you know, any any version of Slaves and Bulldozers that you get live is almost going to dwarf the uh, the studio recording. I mean, the studio so. recording is is fantastic. It really is, but seeing that band perform that song live, stretching it out 11, 12, 13, 15 minutes sometimes with the feedback at the end is just, it was always a spectacle. You know, it was the song they kind of used to close out a lot of their shows and for good reason, because it's hard to really top the experience of of seeing that band rip into this, in this song for just as ferociously as they did. Yeah. Wayne, what do you got on Slaves and Bulldozers? Oh, and the low end on this is so low that if you were to turn up the volume and the bass on your stereo, you could probably you could literally change the rhythm of your heart. It is so, <laughs> and uh, I it's just this song is incredible. And I love like I really look at it as like a, a political commentary, um, a conservative political commentary, talking about you know the basically the slaves and bulldozers, the masses and the power brokers. There's lines about, uh, is it the oh, bleed your heart, like bleeding heart liberal, um, bearing the lies, cover ups. And there's all these, it just has Stealing a real, jokes. 
yeah, stealing jokes, basically just saying the same rhetoric that the other conservative politicians say, but it had our, it had, so it had this really great commentary part of it, but yeah, it's so the, the, the black Sabbath influence is deep. I mean, geezer butler and bill ward would be proud because they really <laughs> they really got like i say if you turn up the bass on this you, you're going to get arrhythmia yeah and and most of the songs on this record are i won't say overtly political but there's definitely some commentary on religion on here and some some political stuff corbin you you you've probably dove into his catalog more than wayne and i have did did Chris ever write any love songs? He did, yeah. Uh, there's a song called Josephine that he wrote for for his wife Vicky. Um, okay. There's there's lots of, there's there's definitely some love songs in his catalog, but but around this time he was definitely focused on a lot of uh, geopolitical you know goings on. Uh, I think the, just like that trip to Claylock uh, took place literally like the day before Desert Storm kicked off, so that kind of was in the air as things were kind of going along and. Um, Th- those tones definitely make it into the into bad motor finger for sure. Yeah, I didn't even put that into context. Yeah, it's great. All right, um, Wayne, your score? Uh, nine. And then Corbin? I got 11. Second best song on the album. All right, this is my nine. And next song, Jesus Christ Pose. This features lyrics from Chris, but music was co-written by, like you mentioned, Corman, the rest of the guys. Mm-hmm. So they they all get uh, a little bit of a of a co-write on this one. Um, music video. Uh, did this get? Did this get the? Did they get this video banned from MTV? For that, I believe part? so. Yeah. Yeah, because of the first part. So the the first part, so God so loved Soundgarden that he gave him his only song. He be- yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to- total, totally uh, three John three sixteen reference there, but uh, Soundgarden three sixteen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, um, I so I'm I'm just going to put some context. So ninety two, I'm at a religious school religious college and i can tell you that my roommates were all offended by this song i know and and i and i tried to defend it a little bit and i'm still going to defend it that it is not i don't yeah i don't think it's about people who are overtly religious i there is a song here that i think is about is kind of anti-religious song but this isn't this is more about holier than thou people or people who are taking the the position of believe like that line about uh you're staring at me you're looking at me like i need to be like i need to be saved saved. and then later on it's you're staring at me like i'm driving in the nails 
I, there's some great lines in here, but it definitely comes off more as, as being about the person thinking that they're godlike instead of actually being a shot at organized religion. Right. You're, you're, you're on your crucifix because you want to be seen. Yeah, like the, the, uh, I actually did an interview uh, with uh, the photographer who took this picture of Perry Farrell, and I interviewed Perry Farrell too, actually about it uh, as well. And there was this photo of Perry Farrell with his arms outstretched and he's shirtless. And he, the photographer showed it to Chris, and it, it's said to have inspired the song. That might be apocryphal, but basically, Chris was like looking sideways at people who would kind of adopt that pose for their own sake of cool or, or, or what have you. And, uh, kind of dragging it a little bit through, uh, through the mud with, <laughs> with this particular song. Yeah. And Perry was trying to be offensive there. Yes, probably. I would imagine yeah. that's kind As of he mostly what he does. is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anything else on, on lyrical? We haven't really touched on too many of the lyrics on these. Um, um lyrically he uses some of the great, you know, it, they're all staples, but I mean, towards the end when it would pay you more to walk on water than to wear a crown of thorns or wouldn't pay me more to bury you rich than to bury you poor. He uses a lot of the big lines to, I feel like to really make his point. And like I say, if anybody thought it was anti-religious, I think they missed the point that he, if they missed like he the was point. making yeah, it just clear. The title is the title's very confusing. Yeah. They see that and it's hard to see past it a little bit. To me, the, the th- this is all about Matt Cameron those drums are heavy oh, there and they're so like primitive. Like it's like, there's no hardly any snare and there's hardly any variation. And it just drives the song. Although I couldn't even, it was hard to focus on anything else. He really, ju- and it's just big drums, big primitive, you know, drums that drive this track. I always said that if you were going to try to make like recreate the sound of a tornado, just using guitars and drums, it would probably sound like Jesus Christ pose. Yeah. No, I, I see that. Yeah, somebody asked me last week, so who's who's your dream guest? And I said Matt Cameron. <laughs> He's a math whiz. I don't know how he keeps the uh, the, the timing straight in his brain. It's just uh, insane. It's crazy. It's all about the numbers. Absolutely. All right, let's get some scores. This is my 10. Wayne? Uh, eight. And then Corbin? I go nine. All right. And uh, next song, Face Pollution. And for me personally, this is kind of where the record drops off a little bit. Um, shortest song on the record at 224. This is where I I feel more of the older influence of Soundgarden, where it was more punky. Right. So, yeah, what, I, what I, I, I absolutely, for just the reasons you're mentioning, love this song. Um, yeah. Because it it, it and. A lot of the songs do have a very heavy uh, Black Sabbath influence that that is very common throughout Alice in Chains and, and other and other contemporaries. This one's totally this is so punk rock. It's two minutes long. The guitar doesn't sound the same. The drums have more snare in them. Um, the lyrics, he just the way he delivers them. But I mean, I just want to point out his titles of the songs in this record 
are so visceral. Just these, Dang, these yep, one or yep. two punch, like face pollution. I mean, the stuff coming out of your face is toxic. It's bad for people. I mean, it's just he creates these very powerful images with just a couple of words. To And even if they don't necessarily have anything to do with the song, it's still he, he comes up with the names first and just punches you in the face. What's his fascination with monkeys? Because this, I know there's some more monkeys. Yeah, circus yes. monkey freaks. I think, but uh, yeah, dogs, the sun, and monkeys. Yeah, they'll right your face off. Yeah, you got to watch out for monkeys. Dry- that sharks. Line, that line is great, though. Like, I love that line. You know, if you, you could say what you want about you know face pollution as a song. We can you know share scores in here in a minute, but. I'm numb, numb as rigor mortis, yeah. scared by monkey faces, drowned in shark fins. Like, where, what, what do you, how do you, how do you even begin? Yeah. You know, like, what just the hell? Creating, yeah, just creating images that just are freaking you out. And like I say, the whole thing just sounds like a, like just one of the best punk rock songs of the, of the era. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. All right. Anything else on face pollution? Uh, it's pretty cool to when you're just, the chorus is just screaming the song title yeah. uh, repeatedly at you. Uh, my other note on here is, um, does Chris ever write choruses? Sometimes. Cause yeah, cause there, I mean, there are a few, but I'm, I'm noticing a trend on a number of songs on this where it's, there really isn't a chorus, but all right. Uh, this is my five Corbin four for this one. And then Wayne, uh, seven Corbin. Can you tell who the punk rocker in the group is? <laughs> He's clinging to his copy of uh, Screaming Life and Ultra Mega OK over there. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Next song is Somewhere. is a Ben Shepard song. He's credited for both the music and the lyrics. So if that sounds like it's uh, huh. a little bit different, that would be why. Um, you guys cool with the really long false outro? Uh, yeah, I mean, like when I'm listening to it, like I'll, if, if I don't just have the record on, I'll skip that part a little bit. That little dung, dung, clingy thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's cool. You know, it's, I'll, it's the vibe. It starts out at like the three minute mark and then doesn't end for like another, what, minute, 20 seconds? Something, yeah. Wayne, uh, what do you got on somewhere? Um, it makes sense that it's somebody else because I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was disappointed, but the lyrics aren't, aren't what, I've, what I've heard to this point. This is the, it's a, not a bad end to an v- extremely s- strong side one. And, uh, but, I, but musically it sounds right in their wheelhouse and lyrically I thought it was unexceptional. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Get some scores. Um, I gave it a five and then Wayne, a three and I'm matching your three. And uh, I guess if you have the vinyl, this is where you flip it over, right? I think so, but I don't have the vinyl. I just (laughs) have the CD. All right. uh, So, so uh, searching with, and this is where I, I keep messing it up. Um, searching with my good eye closed. 
I think on the, on the scoring sheet, I, uh, so I have my, my oldest son <laughs> help me with, with this. And well, it makes sense. You would want to keep your good eye open, but I think that's to me, that's the cool part of the, of the song is this searching for something with your good eye closed and, and like the fumbling around and waving your hand, knocking things over, like the, the futility of it all. great song uh just so vivid just heavy um that that first part you know do you hear a cow rooster says here's the devil like that that what a great one of the all-time great introductions to any song uh sort of a happy accident he was hanging out with um scott sunquist uh his successor on the drum kit in Soundgarden. they remained friends over the years and they were messing around with a c and say and um the battery died out as they were pulling it. And then Chris made the joke and the devil says, and any idea was just stuck. It was just one of those happy accidents. And they threw it on this, on this album. Yeah. My, yeah, my little brother true. had one of the C and says, and yeah, sure enough, the battery died and it does sound like it, it, it would sound like, I don't know, Jonathan Davis was saying, <laughs> this is what my picky says, you know, and, and it was, yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of humorous. Um, Lyrically, anything? Um, I mean, just the way he screams to the sky. I, I, yeah. You can talk about you know the the content and the lyrics, but talking about the way he delivers them. I, one, I was talking to someone, and someone said, you know, I don't I don't know how to sing, but when I think about how Chris Cornell would sing a song, then I can sing. And he had just such a feel for when to kind of let it loose, when to hold back. Uh, he wasn't always screaming, but when he yeah. starts screaming to the sky like just really belting it out like you feel it and that is what always sticks out to me about this particular song yeah yeah he definitely did have a feel to it i i tell everyone that my favorite cover of all time is when he covered led zeppelin's thank you oh fantastic just fantastic. I, I mean he just knew when to emote on the, on that cover and it's just it gives me chills every every time I listen to it, every single time. There's also like a blues, like in the way it's structured, it's almost a blues song. You know, he kind of there's repeats. He he's, he doesn't just say things the same. You know, the, just once he you know it's looking for a paradigm so I can pass it off. Is it on my side? On my side. There's there's a blues kind of element to it that kind of melds oh. with the psychedelic feel. It just it's kind of wild how it crosses different spectrums that way. I never thought of it that way. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Let's get some scores. Wayne. I like I say, he has the best scream in rock and roll. And even when he does it, like he has he's the master of just before you scream. Like he can he can sing a song that's got this growliness, like he could he could break into a scream, but he's just he's not. He's holding back. But I gave this a six. Um, I just, there's a weird kazoo. Uh, the guitar has an effect on it that almost makes it sound like a kazoo, which I don't 
say that like I don't like it. I just it's like I remember every time I hear it, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then just as it ends, the song gets super heavy and 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 rides out. That woo, <laughs> that woo where it's woo, just it lets uh, it's like he, he can't help himself. I gave it a I gave it an eight. I gave it an eight. Um, it's just a fantastic song and one of one of Chris's you know real dynamic moments in his career that I just it draws me in every time. Yeah, and I'm right in the middle of you guys, so I'm at a seven. All right, uh, next song is Room a Thousand Years Wide. this song i don't know why but i think of the movie singles i know that it's not in singles but it has a very definitive 1990s seattle sound kind of like um uh it it reminds me of allison chains it ain't like that anymore am i off base wayne you know what i i can see that i i get that and if this sounds like um, more like songs off of Louder Than Love, that's because Room a Thousand Year, Years Wide was actually released as a single in 1990. Uh, that was on Sub Pop Single of the Month Club. Uh, the B-side was HIV Baby. Yep. Yeah. Um, the other reason why it may sound different, it's actually a Kim and Matt song. So that's correct. Yeah. He, uh, Kim did the words. He wrote the lyrics. He got a lyric credit for that. And Matt Cameron's the one who came up with the music. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. Uh, Wayne, what else you got on room a thousand years wide? Well, I like, I like measuring something linear, like the size of a room with a, with time. I think that, cause there's a very heavy burden that this, he keeps referring to he, which is, I believe himself. And, you know, there's like, there's a line about he lives these years that I walk blind, like not knowing, like not paying attention to your life. There's like references where this, which it's made clear by that, that measuring a, a linear distance with this time frame breaks it really feel massive. Like these are really smart lyrics. Um, and like the tomorrow begat tomorrow. I mean, day after day after day after day, he really, he's, you know, that's, that's a much better way to say that. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the lyrics that specific lyric "Tomorrow Begat Tomorrow" was uh, inspired by a 1920 silent film <laughs> called uh, "Haxon" uh, that Kim heard about or saw. I can't quite remember specifically, but it, there was that line in there: "Tomorrow begets tomorrow," and, and that line just stuck with him, and he decided to run with it. This is kind of one of Soundgarden's more psychedelic songs, mm-hmm. uh, kind of worn that Fourth of July vein a little bit, where it's just you almost feel like you're living in a dream uh, as you're listening to it a little bit. It's just disorienting that sense of time and place like you were talking about Wayne is, is it just puts you in a different headspace altogether. And 
the more I talk about the song, the more I think about it, I might've just scored it too low. I don't know. It's just a fantastic <laughs> song. Honestly, I love this track. Yeah, I do too. This, this was my eight. Uh, and when I saw Wayne score on that, I'm like, really? Come yeah, on, man. Well, it's, it's, this one's tough. I mean, that like, I this there's no bad songs. I mean, we've said that about lots of albums, but there's no bad songs. There's no songs I dislike on this album. It's just Correct. you know, it's about what's what's your favorite. I know, I know. All right, I, so I told you my score, Wayne. Your score? It's a five. It it's and I felt the same way that you felt when you looked at my score. Um, the horn surprises <laughs> me every single time, even though I, I I should know it's there. I'm like, is that they just someone just played a saxophone in a Soundgarden song. And then, but that guitar riff is super hypnotic. The saxophone is almost like Stooges esque. You can kind yeah, of see yeah, why, it's, you know. Yeah, it's great. It just, and it's, like I say, surprised me every time. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's a, a great element they throw in there. Just all of a sudden you're listening to Soundgarden and there's a, like a screaming, like, yeah, like 1970 Stooges era, like sax solo in there. Just noise. Phenomenal. I gave this a, a six. Um, I'm questioning that now, but I gave it a six. <laughs> all good. All good. All right. Next song is Mind Riot. notes here is another song without a chorus surprise um wayne this was your lowest score is it is the song just too polished for your liking oh i wish it was that simple um okay number one the intro is so pearl jam it's very stone gossardy and just that small intro and that's not like a bad thing but there are two different bands like they have two different sounds and so to hear that real uh, melodic, um, you know, more hard rock, you know, KISW uh, sound is something that oh, it always catches me. And then the other, the other thing, and this is probably, this is ridiculous, but it's not a mind riot. The song does not sound like a mind riot. It sounds like a mind difference of opinion. And so that, <laughs> that take, that always, that ha- that works into it. It doesn't, it doesn't climb into that, that, that first half with these of these really great songs and so i used somewhat tenuous arguments to make it my number one yeah and this is me being a butthole i wrote this is the most audio slave of the songs on this record <laughs> you say that like it's a as a slander i don't know what you're talking I, it's, about here. it's it's i mean it's not but i mean i know i know that 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 you know some diehard soundgarden fans write off the audio slave songs because they are you know produced they are a little more radio friendly than most Soundgarden records I don't find it as a slight because I I love those audio slave records but I I think they're only radio friendly because of Soundgarden and and bands like that that made it okay to have that stuff on the radio I also did forget one note I have is when he says uh it's the line about and the candle was burning yesterday like somebody's best friend died Every time I would hear that line, I would say that reminds me of something. And I kept, 
I'd listen to it and I listened to it and it reminded me of Mick Jagger, but I knew it reminded me of something specific that Mick Jagger had sang. And so I kept listening into it. And it's the line in Jigsaw Puzzle when he says, and it was the farmer's daughter. She was an outcast all her life. And uh, the gangster is an outlaw's life. But it, it reminds me, he kind of does it in this very Mick Jagger way, which I did like mm. that part. Interesting. Which I like the okay. whole thing. I just... I know. Quick, quick, quick audio slave point, though. I just want to say that uh, yeah. when, when Rage Against the Machine folded and Rick Rubin was talking to those three guys, um, you know, it was, uh, and, and they were going around the circle, what should we do next? Tom, you know, and Brad and, and Tim and, and uh, Rick Rubin played them the song Slaves and Bulldozers. And then all of a sudden the light went on their head of, hey, you know what? Maybe we should go call Chris Cornell and see if he'd be interested in playing some music with us. Uh, and I'm sure Rick wants to take credit for all of that, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I'll say this, I don't even care because when I heard that the musical force of Rage Against the Machine was going to have the leader of the lead singer of Soundgarden, I was like, I'm in. I'll give me 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 10 copies. Yeah. 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 Uh, To get back to this song, though, Mind Riot, I I love this song uh, much more than Wayne does. Um, (laughs) It's, it's, it just, it's so unsettling to me. I kind of went off my reaction to it. You know, I don't, I can't really define why I love this song so much. It's, it's a little bit difficult because it is very esoteric and uh, it's, it's almost, I don't want to use the word grating, but it's very like, it's just really sharp. Like it's almost like there's a, there's a, there's a, like a serrated edge to the song, but it always makes me stand up and take notice. Just, there's a lot of, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. There's a lot of space in it. Um, There's a lot of volume changes. It's very dynamic. And yeah, I, I always, respond to mine right i I always historically have yeah this is my six and corbin seven and wayne uh one uno boo boo okay um i know all right next song is drawing flies Shortest, second sort of shortest song at 225. Uh, Cameron is credited for the music, Chris for the lyrics, and Matt is a beast on this song. Ugh. Yeah, this song is, sounds so different from anything else on it. And it, it just has almost like a bounce to it. And you wouldn't, like we mentioned the horns before, they surprise me. They're perfect here. Uh, it, they're just, it's, it's, it's amazing. But there's... But lyrically, he has this this cadence to his voice that is just it's a, it's like it's like there's something devious about it. And so some of the lines with the X's on my eyes and I love the leaning on the pedestal that holds my uh, self-denial. I just there's just some great lines in this. But the, it's the, the way he the way he sings it, his vocal delivery is is just is just amazing. Yeah. I, there's not a lot, there's not a, not a lot, there's not, okay, there's no bad songs on this record. Like we, we've had that caveat, but oh, yeah. this is my least favorite song on Bad Motorfinger. Um, to me, there's a sort of a chaotic 
kind of like a freeway pileup energy to it that, you know, it just sticks out a little bit to me. And, and as much as you like this sax solo, I don't know that it works for me so much on this song. I do love, I think it works better on the page if that, if that makes any more sense. Because like you said, the, the lyrics are so vivid, you know, sitting here like uninvited company, wallowing in my yeah. own obscenities. I share a cigarette with negativity. Like, damn, you know, like, <laughs> holy hell, that's, that's, that's a powerful thing. But the way it's couched and arranged, not my favorite. It's a, it's a good song, um, but not my favorite. Yeah. All right, Wayne, what's your score on this? 10. And then Corbin? One. And this is my four. All right, next song is uh, that religious song that we talked about. Uh, This is Holy Water. talked about the religious overtones and Jesus Christ pose. Um, and I can't totally tell if, if there's a lot of indignation towards religion through this other than, is he really saying that the monkey circus freaks are religious people or am I reading into that? I think more so tell it to me, it, it spoke of televangelist. Yes. I mean, I read on it as well. It, it isn't, you know, it's not the pastor in the church on Sunday. This is the people who are making money off of it is the way it read to me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what else you guys got? Anything, um, lyrically, this wasn't, this wasn't super strong for me lyrically. Yeah. There's a reason it's the, the second, the last song on the album. You know, I think that, you know, bands recognize where the strongest material is and, uh, it's a good song. I think, I I think really the way Chris sings, it kind of saves it, uh, in the end for, uh, for, you know, what it could have been. Yeah. Uh, the one, the one note that I've got here is from, and I, I wish I could have remembered where, um, where I got this, this interview part, uh, it says, Holy water is just more of a poetic way of saying, I don't appreciate having anyone's ideas thrust upon me like their baggage baggage. It is going to be taken literally as religion, but it isn't, it's anything vegetarianism or political ideas or any kind of idea new ageism, anything. I think when people offer you these things, especially if they offer it to you aggressively, then they're assuming that you're confused and unhappy. But to me, that's insulting. And that's what the song is based on. Ism, ism. <laughs> there you go. And and that seems like such a Soundgarden title. Like they should have had a song called Ism, ism. Ism, ism might have yeah. been even better title than Holy Water. I got to yeah. tell you. Totally. I, I totally. think it should have been called like Monkey Circus Freak because these last two songs, <laughs> they they fail from, you know, most of the other titles are these really, like I said, powerful, visceral words that they just string together even, it feels yeah. like sometimes. And these last ones are somewhat generic. Like I said, this should have been called Monkey Circus Freak. Huge missed opportunity. Yeah. Huge missed opportunity. 
Agreed. Agreed. All right. This is my two. Wayne. I gave it a four. It went long. Three. Three for me. And, and then let's wrap this up. This is new damage. is this song directed towards because it's it's pretty ambiguous so i'm i'm not really not sure who say, it's, you know what turned me off i i got a and ben will probably be able to relate to this better but i get uh, the new world order i just i heard i mean growing up being in in the 90s i just heard that word it just that phrase came in too long and every time i would hear it i just i like immediately turned off so maybe it's george bush Maybe. Probably. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's the, like sort of the like desert storm situation kind of filtering into the music a little bit, you know, wondering what the state of the world's going to be uh, at that time. You know, Chris started riding his bike a lot <laughs> in that period, riding his bike from his house to in West Seattle to Woodenville sometimes just because he was worried about oil consumption. Yeah. It's a grip. It was, it was a grip. That's a ride. I know. Yeah. Uh, so that was definitely on his mind. I think that's kind of where the, um, that's kind of directed towards. And that's why he was always in shape and the attention of our man crush. Yeah, exactly. That's why he didn't wear a shirt. That, yeah. Can we talk about the guitar intro at least though? Like just that just savage right off the bat. Like it does grab your attention from the, from the jump. Yeah. And, and Kim and Matt are credited for the music for this one. So if it sounds a little different, that will probably is why. There you go. Uh, Chris, Chris, great, Chris is the lyrics. So. It has a great like crawling, like, um, just a slow, methodical crawl, which I thought felt—I thought that worked for the end. Um, I just, for as little as he has to say, to go on over five minutes was. Yeah. That was yeah. drags a little bit. Yeah. Maybe. Yep, I agree, and that's why this is my low score. And then Wayne. Uh, two. And then Corbin. Also two. All right. And this is where I say, did we miss anything? Did we cover everything? Gosh, I hope so. Let's get to the Super Deluxe Edition. <laughs> exactly. Is it? Is there anything on the Super Deluxe Edition that is that you think that maybe was a missed opportunity where maybe one of these songs like A Holy Water should have been replaced or this last this last song? Nothing I can think off the top of my head. You know, they kind of emptied the can a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, th- there wasn't there wasn't much material left on the floor that would have been you know pushed out something like Holy Water or, or Mine Right or New Damage or anything like that. You know, they really they kept it a tight twelve, and I think that it was uh, warranted. Uh, should Birth Ritual have been on this? Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah. Although that's thirteen songs, and you know who you don't want to fight that kind of bad juju. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because she's a politician. No. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at some of the other ones. Um, blind Dogs. Blind Dogs could have 
Do I remember? Atlantis is a strong contender. Super long though. Yeah. CD. Who cares? I know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The Red Hot Chili Peppers put seventeen songs on her. Uh, let's we we're, we let's not compare Soundgarden to Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm just, ever. I'm just putting. I'm just pointing out a band that likes to use up every available minute of a of a CD. Ninety two headliners. Yeah. The Lollapalooza tour. Yeah. Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's, it's not, who cares? Um, <laughs> can you tell? I not, not, not a fan. The, they're no, I'm just, I just never got into them. All right. Um, any surprises on what number one is? What do you think? Number one is outshined. It's gotta be outshined. We're feeling, we're feeling California out here today. Yeah. Like we're feeling it. it. It was just one notch from being a unanimous 12. Uh, cause I had this as my second favorite. Uh, number two is rusty cage in number three slaves and bulldozers Four. Jesus Christ pose and what do you think rounds out our top five? Um, is it is it searching? It's searching, and we're just leave it at searching because I'll probably sleep. <laughs> yeah, which eye is it's not more closed? It's not like controversy on here. Yeah, you know? is, is it the good eye? Is, is it the is it the good eye? That is it open or closed? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. This was a lot of fun, Corbin. Oh yeah, I had a blast, guys. Oh, I had a blast. Great. Yeah. So, so, so tell everybody where they can find your, find your book. Yes. Total effing Godhead is out now. You can pretty much find it on anywhere. You kind of get books. There's a ebook edition, Kindle. There's uh, Amazon's got card cop- hardcover copies. Um, you got, there's Should an audio book version. If you have audible, um, there's every Avenue, every outlet, you could go to your local indie store. I'm doing an event with Powell's on August 6th. Oh, nice. With Mark Yarm for the author of uh, or the oral history of grunge. Everybody loves our town. Um, so you can catch me talking more about the Chris Cornell and Soundgarden there and maybe even pick up a book uh, if you want to support some local stores. Very good. So when I buy my book, finally, um, how, how do I get a, how do I get a uh, autographed uh, plate from you? We'll, we'll, I'll figure that out for you. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. All right. Because uh, it will happen. I just, yeah, I got to get some finances. Mine gets here the 6th, but it, it's not coming from a local bookstore. After you said that, I felt bad. It's all good, man. However you got to get it, you got to get it. I'm, 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 you know, do what you got to do. Well, I looked at Amazon and it, it was going to take him like three weeks to get it to me. And so I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll check on Powell's before, you know, and I just never did. So <laughs> Powell's is probably going to be quicker because they Definitely, probably, yeah. they probably have a big old stack waiting for you to, to, to come there for that event. So, and if you're interested, they have signed copies too. So if you want oh, to get one of those, yeah. Okay. Then I won't have to buggy for a play <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> two birds one stone i'm here for you you know what can i say there you go there you go all right so um last question uh we we throw this to all of our guests so um who do you know that i don't know who should come on our podcast to revisit one of their favorite records matt cameron <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if you can hook us up, man, like I said, he's, he's, he's dream guest. Like there are other people that I would, I would love to have on the podcast, but I don't think that they would enjoy our format. Like Wayne, I know you love Elvis Costello, but I don't think Elvis would would love that could be tedious. He would not like our format. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many different directions you go with someone like Matt Cameron, Temple, the dog, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. He, he, come on, he's the he's the apex guy. He'd probably pick a jazz record, wouldn't he? Oh, I'm sure he would. 
Yeah. He'd be like, we're going to score Mingus. Um, you know, Ben Shepard pretty- loved, loved, loved Mingus. That was one of his biggest uh, inspirations out there. I could totally see that. Yeah. Could totally see that. Yeah. I don't know why I never, never uh, put that together, but yeah, he totally has a, a, a Jocko jazz vibe to him. Doesn't he? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Very cool. All right. Um, so as a reminder, you can find all of our old episodes by going to Records Revisited Podcast. Find all of our happenings on our socials. I'm on the, the uh, Facebook page and also the Twitter handle at Podcast Records. Wayne, what's the Instagram? Records Revisited Podcast. Easy enough. And, and go find us on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you can find find podcasts. And um, did, did you see we broke the we broke the hot 100? I, I had no idea. Is there a there, I didn't know there was a list. There's a music commentary uh, top 100 for Stitcher and we're number 95. <laughs> well, there you go. I don't know. I don't. I, I was just looking at it. I'm like, oh, look, we're right there. Um, totally stupid, but whatever. We're not. We're we're 95. Congrats, guys! Yeah. Did it. You yeah. freaking did it. Like it. Good year. <laughs> All right. Uh, so everyone, thank you for listening. Please go support the arts. I would tell you to go to a live show, but you know the drill on that. Uh, go support your favorite musicians. Go check out one of their live events on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Go buy a record and buy a t-shirt from your favorite band. They need all the support that we can give them during these treacherous times. We are Records Revisit and we are out. Out. out.